0: You're listening to 50 plus a tip, the show for strippers, ethical sluts, and other open-minded hoes. Hey guys, welcome back. It's Danica and I'm with Riley and you're listening to part two of our two-part interview with Tamara. And this part, we're going to go over all of your listener questions and you guys are going to love it. So here you go. Alright, so we put it out to the listeners to ask questions because they always ask us a lot of questions about uh, legality and so forth, and why not ask you instead? So the first question question was actually directed at me a week or so ago, and I was like, I will pause and let Tamara answer it for me. <laughs> so the question was, um, hey babe, have you heard about the new Canadian anti-porn bill coming out? I'm reaching out to both you and another podcast. In case you want to bring attention to it on your platforms. I'm part of a local group of sex workers, and so far, our brief has been rejected. They have a bunch of witnesses, and they are all abolitionist agencies. Vancouver Rape Relief is one of them. Um, So do you know the bill she's referring to, to,
1: and can you explain Uh, it? Yeah, it's, it's actually, it's not, um, it's not a law yet, uh, but what the government is doing right now is trying to review whether or not there are particular provisions that they ought to bring in to try to address what they perceive as issues of exploitation that are in existence in um, a lot of different kind of online environments. And so the question mark here will be just how expansive these provisions end up being and whether there'll be another future challenge as a result of these. I mean, the reality is, and I think this kind of comes as a bit of a surprise for some people, is that advertising is already criminalized, right? So you already can't advertise somebody else's sexual services. You can advertise your own sexual services, but you also can't pay, say, for example, somebody to host your website on a server uh, because then that person is materially benefiting from your sex work and not their own. Uh, So... These are the ones that came in and that are now being challenged and have been challenged in several cases successfully. Um, but this is now impacting folks who previously were working in what they thought were legal environments. So it is an overreach for sure. Um, that's one of the grounds on which they've been declared unconstitutional is that they are overbroad and reaching into areas that the criminal law actually has no responsibility over at present. But that's what they're trying to do. So one of the things they're concerned about there is trying to do things like um, force advertisers to check age, right? Um, and there's, you know, there's there's some difference of opinion on that on whether or not there should be an obligation from advertisers, because the reality is if you are advertising somebody who is underage, for example, then the onus should be perhaps on you. The problem with using the criminal law in those contexts is that we don't have a very good history of using the criminal law in, in ways that actually benefit any group. Mm-hmm. Um, if anything, it tends to drive things underground further and keep the people that we try to help even further from our reach.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So I think I think what your the questioner was, was saying. I mean, I'm glad you read it out loud because that's exactly what should be read out loud. Is the fact that sex workers themselves, people who are working in these different environments, who are going to be most directly impacted by these laws, are not being consulted or included in any part of this process. That's really problematic. If you look at the list of people um, who are part of a lot of these justice committees, you will see. And I actually, had an honor student do this last year, and she went back and she looked at the groups who were being a given space to speak and then the groups who submit these really in-depth briefs that have all the social science evidence and then she looked at what actually gets used when the government creates its reports and she found a crazy amount of religious groups who get relied upon to create the law that the government relies on policing reports its own government reports and then abolitionist and religious groups those were your top three groups the social science minute, like 5% of the citations in the government reports, which is appalling. I mean, we should all be very concerned about this, in my mind, if our law is so incredibly overtly driven by an ideological perspective and completely outside of the realm of social science evidence.
2: Definitely. Yeah, the, uh, the state and the church definitely need to be kept separate. And then... <laughs>
1: one would think, but it was really quite surprising how much of an influence these religious groups are having on criminal law in particular and, and in this subject area. So crazy. So I've
2: spoken about this, I think, a couple of I – mean, it must have been a while ago when we were talking to um, the porn stars that we had on, but going to SFU, as I mentioned before, and you teaching at SFU, have you come across the Porn Hurts group?
1: Oh, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. I've, uh, you know, I've, I've been there for long enough. I've seen so many of the, the different posters and the magnets and the things that get posted on the back of washroom stalls, um, the various different kind of movements that come up periodically. Um, and yeah, and I've, I've met people uh, who definitely hold that perspective. Um, I've, I've met sometimes uh, a grad student or another instructor from another department um, who, who feel that there is... Um, Uh, damaging effect relating to porn, Uh, the reality is there's no social science evidence, again, to back that up. Um, All of the research that has been done is difficult to do, right? Because anything that you're doing in terms of causative research is hard for humans. What does cause you to make your decision to do something, right? It's usually a variety of factors, and it's going to look so different in different contexts and in different environments. So it's hard to pin that down to one thing. But the studies that have happened in this area usually prove that it's inconclusive, that we can't make that conclusion, that porn actually has negative impacts on society. And then some of the research has been so shoddy. It's amazing. I mean, you see things like um, people, like some men, for the most part, who have been convicted of criminal offenses. And they'll ask these individuals, how much porn did you watch? And then from that, they'll say, aha, see, Porn makes people commit criminal offences. No, actually, that's totally, you can't draw that conclusion from those data. They're not logical. It's not the logical step. Um, that's, that's not at all what we can say. But that's what's being used to drive those kinds of messages. So they are alive and well. Um, and this kind of legislation that we're seeing uh, being proposed right now is precisely based on that idea.
2: Yeah, I am um, I remember sitting down cuz I saw the Porn Hot Hurts group and being a sex worker I was like, I'll mm, we'll see about this. <laughs> and it was exactly that they were kind of spitting statistics at me saying that um uh if you watch porn and you start to get into things like BDSM, then you just look for more and more aggressive things which were like which lead oh, to wow. you being a more aggressive or violent person towards women. You can't tell if um If women have actually given consent And I was like, okay, first of Mm -hmm. all Have you looked at paid porn sites Or proper porn sites that aren't Pornhub And second of all, have you spoken to any sex worker About this?
1: No, and those are very good questions that should be asked over and over again. Um, and that's what we have to do is hold people accountable right, when they're making these kinds of statements. Um, but as I was gonna say there, in terms of, of speaking with people who work in the industry, I have spoken with several people who work in adult film, and they will tell you that there are all sorts of consent-related uh, documents that get signed. Uh, it depends on, on, obviously, there's a range, and there are some people who are exploited. I talked to one woman um, who, did, who worked in the industry, actually, off and on for 10 years, and she said one of her first experiences was absolutely awful. Absolutely awful. She did not consent to doing what they ultimately filmed and she actually went afterwards and and sued them Mm -hmm. and successfully. Um, But everything else she experienced was actually completely on her terms and what she was willing to have filmed and what she was not willing to have filmed. Um, so, so yes, those experiences of violence and horror absolutely happen. Um, but that doesn't, does that mean that they are symptomatic of the entire agency or, or, or does that mean that they are one-off kind of circumstances where you do have some people who are unethical and you have people who are nasty, right? I mean, think about any one of our environments, think about marriage, for example, right? For me, marriage has been, a wonderfully positive thing. I've been married now for, for too long, um, <laughs> a really, really long time. And, uh, and it, it certainly has not been experienced with violence, but I know that the statistics tell me that for so many women across Canada, marriage is violence. Yeah. Now, should we then say to all women, well, you shouldn't engage in the marital arrangements because there, some people are negatively harmed from that. I don't think that's really the policy response that we want to go down the road with. Um, so, so that's very, very important. And I think that it completely, again, uh, misrepresents the variety of adult film that exists out there. And I think that there are a lot of people who are making film uh, in, in ways that we would consider ethical. Um, I remember speaking with another woman um, who owned, a, owned, owned her own company and she filmed the consent process beforehand and then she filmed the scene with the individuals and then she filmed a debrief afterwards on, on every time that, that, that they would do the scenes. And for the people who were involved in this, it was about exploration and demonstration of non-mainstream porn and you know all these forms of sexuality and gender and, and ways of touch and, and just it was more educational and expressive. Um, that's on the other end. Right? So, but there's this huge range of experiences out there. So to reduce it to any one single narrative is extremely harmful.
2: Yeah, no, we completely, <laughs> we completely agree. <laughs> Josie, I had my words with them. <laughs>
1: I, I imagine, yeah, yeah, they're hard though. And and I think one of the things that that we're seeing, and one of the things that's it's interesting, I'm, I'm hearing because I hear from so many students every term, um, and my students this term are like, well, what can we do? They're they're constantly wondering, what can we do as individuals? to be better allies, and to make sure that some of these harmful practices stop. And one of the other students suggested that what they need to do is make sure that on all the student groups that they're involved with, there's a sex worker positive statement. Because that pushes sex worker positivity out into the activism realm. Um, it makes it an issue. It makes you cannot simply be silent. Uh, if somebody is going to make statements like that, then there's something to say, actually, you know what, we are an inclusive space here, and that includes sex workers. Because students are sex workers. There are lots of students who are sex workers. And so to, to make their, their learning environment an unsafe space is, is dangerous for them as well.
0: Yeah, it's just us and trust fund babies who can afford university, so <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we're, we're everywhere. <laughs> so the next listener question here, and there's kind of two here, so they, and they kind of touch on the same thing. So the first one is, any guidance on accounting slash claiming income? And then another question was, will the government know I'm a stripper? I file as unemployment, and I dance in a club.
1: Ah. Uh. Okay, so best thing to do is to get an accountant um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and have those questions answered specifically for your individual circumstances, because some of this stuff is really hard to talk about on a really broad basis, which is all I'm doing right now. Right. Um, and I know that there are some accountants that are sex worker friendly mm-hmm. um, and that are really aware of all the different things that you can write off, for example, uh, the ways that you should structure your businesses, the ways you should incorporate, the ways that you should protect yourself in a lot of ways, too, from whether it be um, landlords who might find out about some stuff that perhaps you're doing in spaces that they don't know about presently, um, or about advertising things, or or whatever else it might be. So the uh, number one thing to do is get an accountant. Because claim taxes um it's uh it's partly because you're setting up your whole personal financial history right so if you take yourself out of that that um area then you're going to have some difficulty when it comes time down the road to do things like have a credit rating um to open bank accounts and to be able to do things like buy and invest and take care of yourself financially which ultimately is the reason most people are doing this right um so it should be just a part of that whole piece is that this is a business um and i think that um, Danny, I, I'm not sure if you have a list of people or recommendations of particular accountants. I know that there are some that exist. Perhaps that's something that you can you can send out in, in some way. Yeah, definitely. Um, but yes, yeah, so I would say claim taxes, please. Um, and will the government know that you dance if you say you're an employee? Or employee? Well, first of all, you're you're probably not an employee. You're probably independently contracted um, to most of the agencies and the dance clubs. Um, but they have they have a variety of staff. Right? So, there are all sorts of jobs in dance environments and in many other environments, so you don't have to necessarily disclose the specific type of work that you do. But also, the government doesn't care, they just want your money. <laughs> right? I mean, really, that's, that's what it's all about, is giving that cut. Um, so, it's, uh, they're, they're not super invested in doing anything about you disclosing that. But if you are concerned about having your name publicly associated with anything, uh, then you need to think about ways to protect yourself there.
2: And I think this year really showed us um, that we should be paying taxes because if you haven't been filing taxes, or unless you had a secondary job or something that you were, you weren't eligible for any government help during the pandemic. And it's yeah when you, yeah, and an independent contractor as well. It's it's really difficult to get that support when you're not filing taxes. Definitely, absolutely. And
0: I think a lot of us too, it's frustrating because at the club, you know, we're paying 40% taxes to the club. Mm-hmm. And then, because especially it always irks me for like, oh, like sex workers don't pay taxes. It's like most of us do. We pay more than you actually, because we pay the government taxes and then we pay 40% on all our income as well to, you know, the man at the club. So <laughs> we pay a lot more taxes. Oh, yeah.
1: No, that's, uh, <laughs> I can understand how that would be. <laughs> that, that would some frustrations, shall we say, um, but this it's important too. I think for people to think about if they ever get injured on the job, right, um, for compensation for that, uh, any kind of extended health that you might need at some point, uh, things like uh, mat leave, which may not be something that most people are thinking about right now, but hey, it happens. Um, <laughs> so these are there are all kind of factors to think about in terms of setting yourself up for the future.
2: Definitely pay taxes. <laughs> <laughs> all right so we have a next listener question what is your favorite topic to teach your students either in relation to sex work or criminology as a whole
1: ah oh, that's so hard <laughs> <laughs> I mean I'm pretty sure danny you can you can attest to the fact that I love my job yeah do <laughs> I do yeah. I, I'm I, I feel so lucky to have the job that I, that I have uh, because I get to talk about so many subjects that I actually really really love. Um, this one obviously I made it into an entire course because I loved it that much <laughs> but I also teach on uh, human rights and civil liberties and that class too allows me to talk about so many aspects of Inequality and aspects of discrimination, but also aspects of the whole legal scheme that exists around us that either sustains inequity or that we can try to use to make space for more equitable uh, legal structures and responses. Um, but I'm very critical, and I'm I'm very critical of legal structures. And so, one of the things that I love to talk about is to really push people to think about the fact that our whole legal system is built. On a colonial and capitalist structure that benefits very specific people in society, um, and a lot of people kind of sit back and go, "Whoa, this is a radical person here." And I'm not. I'm not at all a radical person. I'm just stating a fact. Um, and so I think that's that's probably a piece that I bring into every one of the classes that I teach. Definitely. I uh, <laughs> no. I completely. I can. I know. Like, I.
0: It's such like a. Uh, it seems so obvious to to us. But it's so not obvious. It seems to the masses how much, yeah, our law system is so screwy and so like really, yeah, really just benefiting a very specific person in society, usually the white cis male. Um, yes. <laughs> and no, that's yeah. not that's not a radical statement at all it's a pretty fucking obvious one
1: Um, wouldn't you you especially today right and I think that there are more people today who are willing to say okay yeah there's some truth to that but certainly when I started teaching all this material 20 years ago um, that was a radical thing to say back then and I would have a lot of people kind of look at me like whoa crazy chick in the room here and I'd be like no just take a look at for example who first had any ability to vote Mm -hmm. who was allowed to be in governance who was allowed to make our laws who was allowed to you know be judges who who were the people who could even hold property mm-hmm. it's a very particular group of people and i didn't make it up right? <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is the law that existed at the time yeah um, so you know and i think t- it relates very much to today and we're seeing all the movements around black lives matter but also we're seeing you know discussions around the rise in anti-asian hate that's happened in the last year um the connections between both of those movements and colonial or or anti-colonial movements um And I think that all of these different groups or perspectives are coming forward to challenge these, these ideas. The law is this neutral and wonderful thing that affects us all equally. And they're all saying, Hey, no, Actually, that's it's not true. Um, and I think as a long-term feminist, it's been wonderful to see how much overlap there is today between these different groups and to find your spaces in there now because obviously I ascribe to intersectional feminism and I'm not somebody who's a radical feminist, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're not a (laughs) swerve? Yeah, yeah, no. (laughs) No.
2: Uh, Next listener question, and it kind
0: of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, Uh, and this is something I brought up before, too, when I I encourage people to look into this or think about this. So the question is, why is porn legal and not Uh, such a legal battleground but prostitution is?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Um, Personally, I would say that's because corporations are involved. There's big money. I would say it comes back to capitalism and money. Um, and if you can get, let a corporation operate in that area, they're making big money. Um, but we don't want individual women, for example, to make money themselves outside of the system. The system wants its peace. But, yeah, that's probably a little on the critical side. Uh-huh. <laughs> I do, though, I think that there's um, a longstanding piece relating to that, that it was corporations who considered they, they would present themselves as offering it as a work. Um, as offering safer environments than if you were you know, working kind of off on your own. And we see this in the terms of like escort agencies and various things too, right? Uh, where they say, hey, look, we're providing safety and security for our staff. And independent workers would turn around and say, actually – I'm safer when I get to control every aspect of my work than I am when I'm working for an agency. So there's, there's debate about those issues of safety, but I really do think that it comes down to allowing businesses to have their space in this realm. And cause it makes so much money.
0: Mm-hmm. That's right, that's what I said too. Like I have never done a, really a study on it or anything, but my, um, you know, personal opinion by like, you know, not exactly a dumb person. I would say it's probably because it's a multi-billion dollar corporation yeah. that the government really benefits from taxes <laughs> and they don't know how much, you know, uh, Susie is making in her apartment when she's fucking me without a camera. So <laughs> I think there's a big aspect of that to it, for sure.
2: Do you believe that there's an appetite for lawmakers to decriminalize sex work in our lifetime? Which I think is actually a really good listener question yeah. that came in Um
1: No, it was mine. I made it up. Mm -hmm. You
0: don't get to take credit.
1: (laughs) 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 Do I believe there is an appetite for decrim? I do believe there's an appetite for decrim. I'm not sure if it extends to the lawmakers themselves. Mm -hmm. So, part of that is, I, you know, I'm gonna, if I can pull out my crystal ball and imagine who lawmakers might be in 20 years, I hope to see a much more diverse group of lawmakers than we currently have. Um, that's one of the things I teach one of my classes too is like, take a look at who are the representatives. You know, there are very clear patterns of gender, there are very clear patterns of sexuality, there are very clear patterns of race and ethnicity, there are clear patterns of ableism, right? There are clear patterns. The people who ascribe to a religion. Um, and, and these are the people who are representing Canadian voices. So my hope is that in the future we see more diversity, and we are starting to. There's, there are cracks starting to happen in those patterns. Um, if we see more diversity, I think it's naturally going to... Uh, that there are going to be more perspectives on and less entrenched polarization on some of these issues. I think the next generation of folks give me nothing but inspiration. Uh, it's one of the reasons I do what I do is because I find students to be, the, the, they're the ones who, who keep me going, they motivate me. Because um, so if I was just looking at the people in power, I would, it's like banging your head against a wall over and over and over again. Um, but if I look the other way at the people who are coming up and who will eventually be in power, um, I, see, I see much more hope. So, I think the other thing we're seeing right now is a reckoning, right? We are changing in terms of our willingness to criticize major institutions, for example, policing right? Um, there have actually been ideas around prison abolition, uh, police defunding for 20 years really, like we, and, and longer than that. These things have been a part of fringe criminology um, but today they're being forced into all mainstream conversations and they're being a part of police board meetings and they're in like the, the mainstream news today and uh, politicians are being forced to actually answer, you know, should we consider reallocating some police services in terms of issues around mental health or addiction? You know, so I I think that we are at a wonderful place today where people are feeling a little bit less certain about the use of state mechanisms to address these, these social issues. Um, and so I'm going to try to be hopeful on that because I've also seen, I've been a part of this for 20 years, mm-hmm. you know, and I've seen so many people die and be harmed. And I've seen politicians hear that and then choose not to do anything about it. hmm yeah. So I have those experiences behind me where I've seen the, and, I, and I feel the frustration, um, but then I'm going to I'm going to choose to be hopeful.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah.
0: Next listener question is: Can she possibly speak on the bullshit ruling judges keep where violent sex offenders are allowed to see sex workers? It shows me that people don't know the real reason, why and how of rape, and also sex workers aren't punching bags for offenders.
1: Uh, yes Um, (laughs) I would say that that listener has probably said everything that that I could say um, about that issue it it was appalling just an appalling uh, judgment in in so many ways of the review board there Um, sex workers are though very often spoken of this way and that's that's part of the hatred that exists today um, when you see these intersections particularly of of women um, violence and, and sexuality um I know there are some people who will actually argue that, listen, it's a service we're providing. We want to be able to provide these services to folks, and the assumption is they're not going to be violent. Um, but at the same time, when you've got somebody with that kind of a history, there's, there's just no reason that, that that decision should have been made in that way. Um, and it's a lack of concern for sex worker safety. It's a total lack of concern. Um, for those But countries. it's also, it's fundamentally, it's an acceptance of this idea that sex work is violence. Right. If you already think of sex work as violence, then one more experience of violence is not even worth talking about. That's Mm -hmm. what it's meant to be, Um, which is incredibly harmful and wrong and totally wrong, 100 percent wrong. Um, So I think it really speaks to just how entrenched those ideas are.
0: Mm -hmm. For those listeners who aren't familiar, can you uh, do a brief explanation of what um, the ruling is of judges? It's not,
1: a, it's not actually a judicial ruling. It's a review board um, allowing access for a visit. Um, and so there are question marks. It's actually an individual discretion issue in terms of the people who are allowing um, inmates things like day passes. Um, and then within a day pass, they have to say where they're going to go. And so there's an individual who's looking at this file and kind of signing off on it. So this wasn't necessarily an institutional issue or judicial pronouncement of some sort. It was actually an individual who made very poor discretionary uh, decision to allow this individual who had a day pass to go and use it for this particular purpose. It speaks to a lack of communication between the probation officers and the people who are, are supervising, uh, folks who are on day passes. Um, but it's also, you know, it's, it's a bit, I want to be careful here because day passes themselves are often really heavily critiqued by some members of the public who just want people to stay in prison and never come out. And I think we have to think about day passes as a way reintegrate people into society and there are I know so many people with with horror experiences and emotions and it's hard to see um, the government work to try to bring people back into society when you've lost somebody from society Um, but reintegration is a step towards ultimately all of our safety and it's a step towards a peaceful society and so things like these day passes Are actually a good policy. It's just the way that the day pass was um, implemented and the way that this discretionary decision was made that's obviously very problematic and clearly based on somebody who wasn't thinking about sex worker safety. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure if you heard back in January or February 2020. um, I am going to get... Dan, I'm going to say her name because it's French and I cannot. Oh, um, Marilyn Levesque. Okay. The 22 year old, um, escort who was killed by an inmate on uh day parole mm-hmm. in, uh, in Quebec. And yeah, it just kind of goes to show that as you were saying, like, obviously someone didn't think about this woman's safety.
0: And, yeah. and it apparently was a first degree murder, which means, you know, planned out.
1: Yeah, and that, and that means that there would have been some evidence of that planning that was missed, right? And so that's the piece I said about a breakdown of communication between, like, for example, corrections and people who are supposed to be guarding and people who are supposed to be, you know, assessing the individual and whether or not they ought to be given the day pass of freedom and then the individual who's making that decision. Because the person making that decision didn't have all the information, mm. right? <clears throat> and so we have breakdowns in the system that ultimately result in somebody's horrible death
0: yeah i also I haven't read the article but I also wonder um if she was aware of who she was meeting you know if she just thought it was a random you know client yeah. just bored on a Sunday or if she knew hey I'm on a day pass from uh
2: you know <laughs>
1: But that speaks also to, again, the criminalization of the sex industry, where you can't actually engage in so many of the screening practices mm-hmm. that sex you are so pivotal to their safety, mm-hmm. right? Because if you can't ask clients a lot of information because you're fearful of getting criminalized for the public communication provision or you don't, you know, the clients themselves are actually criminalized, then you're not going to be able to find out very much about the individuals and make an informed decision about whether or not this is a safe a call for you to make. Mm-hmm. So, criminalization of the industry is also about play here.
0: Definitely. And that's one of the things I always say is that, you know, sex work, and you, I don't know 100% you agree, sex work isn't inherently dangerous. It's the way our legal system nope. is set up that makes it so. And yep. the irony that people even have the gall to say, you know, I can't believe you did it. It's so dangerous. It's like, well, it's dangerous because you don't let us screen clients properly, so we we can't protect ourselves. So of course, anything's dangerous if you can't protect yourself. You know, you give someone a car with no brakes and a seatbelt, and they go, I can't believe you drive it's So dangerous. It's like, well, give me my car, my, my you know, my seatbelt and my brakes. And <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. So it's very frustrating cool. for a lot of a lot of sex workers, all sex workers.
1: But it's not. A, I mean, it's also the fact that you know, do, saying people shouldn't do a job because it's dangerous is such a bunch of bullshit think about how many jobs there are that are dangerous mm-hmm. and, and jobs that we hold in really high regard, right? If you're, you know, think of our firefighters, so, you know, some people hold police in high regard, some people don't. <laughs> um, or actually like all these like criminal justice jobs, these are dangerous jobs. And then you think about things like fishing, um, anything relating to water, right, and boats, that's dangerous. Um, anything that's mining-related or, or even bodies and labor, there's so many dangers associated with so many kinds of work, but we don't stop those individuals from working at it. What we do is, as you said, we implement all these different regimes to make the work safer, and we've done the opposite when it comes to the sex industry. We've actually made it less safe and more dangerous.
0: Yeah, extremely frustrating. So the next question yeah. here is can an unmarried father use sex work against you in family law proceedings isn't it considered mm-hmm. labor prejudice
1: yes and no so what we've seen unfortunately in some um, family court decisions is it doesn't necess- it goes to this issue of good judgment uh, it's a way of of considering sex work without expressly saying that you're considering sex work in your decision. Um, it's a tricky and sneaky, but it has been used in family court cases in the past in Canada and BC in particular, because uh, that's what I know the most about, um, to uh, question always women the the cases I'm aware of are all women Um, her decision to work in the industry demonstrating a problem with her judgment and therefore relating to parenting uh, judgment it is a total and complete bunch of crap Um, it is is unbelievable to me that that is what can be considered a poor judgment call uh, when we think about some of the other things that do not make it into a court decision and I think it's just one more example of the paternalism of that whole system
0: Yeah. And that's just so frustrating for, like, as we said in the part one of this interview, um, how sex work can allow women to be even better mothers because of the time and the compassion you learn and and all of that. Um, And then to have it completely turned around and saying, you know, look at the poor judgments you make. You work in such a dangerous industry (laughs) that we've made dangerous. Yeah. Uh, Much more dangerous, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Next question here. I'm finishing my bachelor's and would love to continue in academia, but I'm worried that having been a known stage performer will hurt my chances. Is this a legitimate concern?
1: So, there's two. I think there's there's several different things to, to note here. First off, sometimes it's a benefit. Right, so sometimes, and I've seen I've seen several people go through academia who worked in the industry before um, or during their time, and I've seen people have very different responses. Sometimes people choose to hold that information um, confidential to, like, and not not express expressly state that they worked in the industry, um, and that's because they're concerned about things like being judged and things like being treated differently because of that, um, and and that's that's entirely a personal choice that people will make on their own. The reality is that, yeah, people are discriminatory and prejudiced and people can be nasty. Um, However, I've also seen sex work experience be considered a benefit, right? So if you're going to some of these departments, having worked in the industry in some capacity can actually give you more credibility in terms of your research, right? So if you were doing research on exotic dance and you had experience as a stage dancer, then that would actually be considered to be a bonus, Um, also in the context of trying to have more participant and community-based research, so it's not always outsiders doing research on subjects, Mm -hmm. it's people within the industries um, who are doing the research so it it can be a really great thing it will depend there partly on where you're applying, um, how many allies do you have <laughs> in that department? So take a look closely at, at the school you want to go to, um, but also the kinds of student groups that are at that school, and then take a look at the department and your faculty. If there are faculty members who do research um, that show that there's an openness or uh, to uh, sex workers, or if there's faculty that are doing like the opposite kind of, you know, if Janine Benedet is on your faculty um, yeah at UBC Law, for example, uh, you might feel a little bit more concerned about your sex worker status because she obviously represented um, rape relief and several other abolitionist organizations in the Bedford case. So she's, she's well known as somebody who holds that particular perspective. But these schools are all very big. So you can find your space, even if there are some people on either end of the spectrum. Um, so it's really, it's a personal decision more than anything else. And sometimes it's a resistance piece, right? Being able to hold that as your own narrative your own story use it for your purposes and don't necessarily give that over to for example a university um, to use as oh look at how wonderfully open and you know how engaged we are with the community look at the people who come and work and learn from us you can hold on to that and keep that for your uses too. Mm -hmm.
0: So what I'm hearing is SFU won't exactly welcome me because of their anti-porn, but you'll have my back.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That anti-porn group is a tiny little group. They're not. not, They don't have faculty support either. So perfect. There you go.
2: (laughs) (laughs) They don't have my support either, and they don't have Derek Pierce's
1: support. None of our support.
2: support. (laughs) Uh,
0: No, I think that's a very fair question, and it's something I. Have struggled with for many years, I and mean, yeah. you have had many discussions about that as well. Being a very open, out there sex worker and someone who really does love academia and really much wants to go forward with it, um, you've you've kind of discussed that with me a lot, saying you know weigh the pros and cons because there are ways it can really benefit you, like you just said, and there's ways that it could really become a hurdle for you, um, which yeah. is so shitty that it even remotely could be a hurdle because even being successful in the sex industry. That alone should be a testament to that you are <laughs> resilient and, <laughs> and all these yep. pros. But, I yeah. Went,
2: I went through the same thing with uh, discussing if I should put my sex work on my resume. Uh, I was applying to co-op jobs. And I feel like most of the beneficial skills that would make me a good employee, I got through sex work and I, I now can't put that on. So now I'm just a server like anyone else, you know? Mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. Well, and that's where I actually think academia would be more open um, to you know sex work on your resume as a part of your your application than a lot of workspaces. Um, I think there'd be more discrimination in some workspaces, and it's uh, I know this is an issue um, for for law students too. Um, some law students are concerned about getting admission into the bar, um, the bar societies for their different provinces or for the federal or state, um, if you're in the U S. Uh, and so there, there's a good character component that needs assessment. And so you're supposed to disclose anything that might affect this judgment around whether you have a good character sufficient to work as a lawyer, just crazy. <laughs> um, but, uh, this, this have is a lot of great lawyer room.
0: clients. So yeah. That's interesting. <laughs>
1: Well, yeah. Uh, Hello. I mean, I've I've actually known workers who were up on criminal charges and then faced the judge who was literally in their dungeon two weeks before. (laughs) We meet again. I see a slight conflict of interest here. Um, Anyway, but uh, so so in those contexts, it's this, this good character judgment that can actually really heavily impact some group. Um, depending on how societies are addressing the good character component. And it's not just sex workers. Um, People will say, too, that in case of what if you were involved in maybe, for example, uh, stuff around Black Lives Matter? Uh, Maybe you engaged in um, actual acts of resistance for environmental uh, protections, right? So maybe you were a protester and you got arrested. Um, You have to disclose that then. So it's going to be negatively impacting certain groups in society way more than those cis-white uh, privileged individuals who are probably not the ones getting arrested, um, at these various different protests and stuff. So there's, there's been, um, quite a movement now to really rethink that good character component, because it does seem to be one more form of discrimination and a barrier for groups who are not privileged in society. Mm
0: -hmm. I even saw it when I was, when I was a paralegal,
1: um, when I
0: first did, when I first got hired at one, um, one law firm, um, I was, like, not to, like, you know, two my own horn, but I was definitely one of the harder workers in there. You know, most of the women were in their 40s and gossiping away most of their eight-hour lunch, their eight-hour eight hour, uh, eight hour <laughs> shift, and I was working, and then eventually, slowly, it comes out that I'm a stripper, and then, yeah, it was, yeah, definitely. Um,
2: in terms of good character, I feel like not being a sus-hit white man. Is it
0: in, in, in <laughs> itself? You obviously are a good character, <laughs>
1: <laughs> or that things like being willing to stand up as a water warrior, a land defender, should say that you're got a damn good character, yeah, yeah right? Um, but instead, that's it's perceived differently.
0: Yeah, ridiculous. Uh, yeah. Next question here: um, What are The legal ramifications, if you're caught doing sex work and you have an incurable STI, like, for example, Uh. herpes or HIV undetected...
1: Okay, so there's a knowledge component here, um, but yeah, there are HIV non-disclosure uh, criminal prohibitions. So if you have failed to disclose your HIV status, or if you should have known that you are HIV positive and you choose to, for example, avoid getting tested because you don't want to technically have that knowledge, um, you can actually be criminalized for that. Those decisions uh, they're very problematic. It's extremely problematic because again, all it does is push those individuals who desperately need um, medical care. It pushes them away from getting positive, getting their tests. And so we're actually killing people um, through this way. And it doesn't recognize science today, which says that, you know, in terms of transmission of some of these, like, HIV in particular, there are lots of ways to reduce your viral load and to be using condoms um, and, and do various other things in order to stay safe, even if you are HIV positive. But it is a component of consent. Right, So you have to think about it from both parties' perspectives, and what would you like to know if you were going to be having sex or having any kind of uh, contact with somebody, Um, and and is this something that you feel that you ought to disclose to others? Herpes is a different one because it's not life-threatening. So we don't have the same criminal prohibitions associated with that. Uh, Instead, I mean, it's possible that it could go to something like fraudulent misrepresentation, um, so there could potentially be a civil case where somebody fraudulently misrepresents that they do not have any STI, um, and then the, the other person consents because they figure that the activity is safe. So I'm using my air quotes again, which we can't see. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but the, the, And I use air quotes around the word safe because... There, there are lots of things we can do in order to stay safer. Um, and whether or not safe is even a possible guarantee is, is a bit of a question mark. So the the best thing to do is to never stay away from those health authorities. Um, find out your physical health. Take care of your own physical health, even if you're scared. Um, ultimately, it's it it's life-saving uh, in some circumstances. Um, but in terms of disclosure, I think we really need to think about it as a form, a component of consent.
0: Mm-hmm interesting uh last question here and it ends on a on a positive note what's the best thing that has ever happened to you
1: <laughs> my entire life um, I, I,
0: I that's all they said <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh uh, husband and kids they're they're kind of important they let me keep doing what i do um but then i would say um Probably the best thing that ever happened to me was when I started volunteering at Pace. That was the life changer for me. It completely changed the path that I was on, um, and it led me to the last 20-odd years. And I think I have benefited tremendously from that decision to start working with Pace.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, that is it for this episode. Thank you so much for joining us, Tamara. Thank you so much for your time. I know we took more of it than we expected, <laughs> but we had so many people wanting to talk to you and ask questions. Do you have any last comments to add and anywhere you'd like to direct people?
1: Yeah, I, have always, I mean, obviously I would direct people to so many places. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I think I think definitely you know checking out the local organizations that you can support um, for sex worker safety, but also looking at some of the more national um, movements, even like the Sex Workers Alliance or HIV Network. Um, there. Um, Law societies like Pivot or BC Civil Liberties who have been advancing people's rights in the legal system as much as possible. Uh, The the recent challenge now, the one that was just brought into court, uh, this one was led by sex workers. So I think it's one that we should pay a little bit extra support towards where we can um, but then I would just say thank you thank you for making the space for me in in this podcast and to your listeners I'm so grateful that people are wanting to hear what you have to say and are giving you an audience because what you have to say is really important and I know some weeks it maybe doesn't feel that way that this is all oh, it's just more freely but underneath I think and I've been listening to some of your podcast there are some really fundamental and important things that we all ought to be thinking about and considering in how we walk through our daily lives so thank you
0: Oh, well, thank you very much. Uh, Riley, where can we all find you?
2: You can find me on Instagram at City Riley,
0: And as always, you can find me on Instagram at 50 Tip or email me at 50 Tip at gmail.com. Sign to the DMs. If you have any more questions for Tamara, I'm sure there are a bunch more. I can only pick a few. Um, I can always gather those up and throw them your way if you're okay with that. Yep, yeah, <laughs> and. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure, as always, to have you um, in a discussion and and tackling these topics. And as a community, um, I'll speak for the whole of Sex Workers. We appreciate so much what you're doing and so much that you're, um, especially the level of uh, compassion and care and just all of that for you know, obviously people as a whole, but especially a marginalized community like sex workers, where we don't see, unfortunately, a lot of people of allies that are outside the community. Um, and the fact that you are changing the way younger people are viewing it that are coming up, especially in academia, going into a lot of policing with criminology and that. Um, I think it makes a huge impact and a huge thank you uh, for myself and I'm sure Riley echoes the same the same thoughts.
1: You're very welcome. Now come do your master's.
0: Okay. <laughs> I come, I come. <laughs> thank you. Tam- <laughs> thank you so much, Tamara. We'll talk to you soon. Okay. You're very welcome. <laughs> okay. Bye. As always, thank you so much for listening guys. Have a wonderful week and happy hoeing and make sure to check out our amazing sponsors. Bright Future is a Canadian brand that makes all natural premium quality microdosing products. Their products are designed to stimulate focus, creativity, energy, and boost your mood while decreasing stress and inflammation in the body. Check them out on Instagram at get.brightfuture and on their website getbrightfuture.co. Use the code TIP15 at checkout to get your discount. That's tip 15 for your discount. Truly Lifestyle Brand is an all-natural and cruelty-free skin and hair care company that will have you looking and feeling your absolute best. Use code TRULYPLUSATIP for 10% off your online order. Temptations Avenue Lingerie is a Canadian-owned lingerie brand with a variety of styles, ranging from sexy and wild to demure and sweet. Check them out on Instagram at Temptations Avenue and use code TIP25 to 25% off your entire order. That's T-I-P-2-5 for 25% off. Love is a Canadian brand that is focused on self-love and pleasure. They're all about empowering women and encouraging them to express their sexuality openly in a judgment-free environment. Click the link at 50 Plus Tip Instagram and use code 50 Tip to get 10% off your order. Have a wonderful week and happy hoeing.